Yes, I am a member of the church here. My name is Liz and I am going to kick us off with a reading from 2 Corinthians 5. It's going to come up on the screen because I didn't check the, thank you, the number in the Bible. So I'll just give it a second because I find it useful to read along. If you've got your own Bible, points to you. 2 Corinthians 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is behind me, I was hoping to, to see it there as well, but I can't. Thank you. Then I will know where we are. So we are, we can go to the next slide. Thank you so much, Toby. Uh, we are in this series about the five marks of mission. And these are tell, teach, tend, transform and treasure. There is nothing more Anglican than a list that begins with the same letter. And to unpack these a little bit, tell, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Teach, to teach, baptize and nurture new believers. Tend, to respond to human need by loving service. To care for people that need care. We were reading the 24 um, seven vision poem this morning, um, this afternoon, and there's a line in it that says, we are free and yet we are slaves to the dying, the hungry and the dirty. To care, to respond to human need by loving service. Four, transform. We're gonna uh, zoom in on this in a minute, so I'm gonna skip it for now. And five, to treasure, to strive to safeguard the integrity of creation and sustain and renew the life of the earth. And in case you're thinking that is a recent insert that has been in there since 1993, this is not something that is new to our understanding of what it is we are called to as Christians. And I just want to notice what a high calling this is. I can respond to it on days that I'm tired. I feel a bit overwhelmed. I feel like, gosh, those things look hard. And I can also respond to it on days when the world is telling me that I'm just here to accrue more status, more comfort, or more convenience to like baseline survive and if I can baseline survive then to get hot and rich and go what a meaningful life we are called into what a set of important and beautiful things God invites us to partner with him on and I'm so grateful for it like how dignifying of our humanity that these are the things that he invites us to partner with him on. 
So we're going to go to the next slide, which um, go, zooms in on what we're talking about tonight. Seek to transform unjust structures of society, to challenge violence of every kind, and to pursue peace and reconciliation. It's just a little one. Not much to talk about there. In order to get you home at a reasonable hour tonight, we are going to chunk off the first half, although I think this is all related, it's all intertwined, but we're not going to speak specifically about transforming unjust structures of society. And actually, we're not going to um, speak about challenging violence in itself. We're going to really drill down on that last line and to pursue peace and reconciliation. In the reading, we heard that we are invited into the Ministry of Reconciliation. It is part of what we are called to. The first and second marks of ministry are about those foundational calling to reconcile people to God, to say, you are loved, come home. We are also called to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. If Christians should be anything, we should be people who bring peace, not division, whose presence makes unity and connection and reconciliation more, not less, likely. It's hard, right? We live in a world in which reconciliation does not come naturally. We live in the world, the other side of the fall, in which we are constantly being pulled apart. On the next slide, there is a poem by a poet called Langston Hughes, who was part of the Harlem Renaissance. He was a black man in the early 20th century in the US. And he wrote, I am tired of waiting, aren't you? For the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. Worms are eating at the right. You know, why is this so hard? Why does being bringers of peace and reconciliation feel sometimes like an uphill battle? Why does knowing peace and reconciliation, even within ourselves, within our romantic relationships, within our friendships, within our workplaces, feel so hard? I'm going to uh, put up a slide about the big story of the Bible. And I think uh, you've been going through a series about a kind of Bible overview. If we could have the next slide, Toby, when you can. Um, there's lots of ways to think about the movement from Genesis to Revelation, right? This is a, I should have got my physical copy. This is a very, very weird, complex library of books when we talk about the Bible. This is Someone once used the word polyphonic, which means like many voices. It's a polyphonic book written across different millennia and different genres to different people, from different people. It's, it needs to be read with care and with attention and in community and with humility. It's not a really difficult thing to understand. But one thread that we can see through the whole thing is that it starts in unity, moves to disunity and ends in unity. There's the great underlying narrative story that someone described the Lord of the Rings as, as home, away, home again. And we live, I think, in that second hyphen. God creates a world in which there is deep connection and deep unity within God. God, God's self in the Trinity, 
is love, is relationship, is unity. Creates human beings in love, in relationship, in unity, in a world in which they are in love, in relationship, in unity, in connection with each other. And human beings almost immediately pull away from it, pull back into themselves. Luther and Augustine both use this phrase, homo incavatus in se, I think, I'm not big on Latin, which translates as man or humanity turned in on themselves. And so I think of this moment of the fall as the turning in on ourselves. That sin, so much of our nature is like an ingrowing toenail. Something that is designed to reach outward towards each other in connection and unity and love, instead turning in on ourselves. And you know what happens when you have an ingrowing toenail, right? It gets septic. It begins to ooze pus. It is disgusting. Most of the Bible is about this period of disunity, about increasing violence, increasing division, increasing tribalism. The start of that hyphen is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're in the rest of the hyphen, <laughs> which is the waiting, the now and the not yet, until God comes to reconcile everything to himself and will wipe away every tear. And we will see every tribe and every nation and every tongue, every color, every language, every personality type, <laughs> to gathered around the throne of the Lamb in reconciliation, in unity, in beauty. But we still live in the hyphen. And so how do we live in this hyphen? How do we live not as humans turned in on themselves, but people who can turn outward towards our neighbor and love each other? Our next slide is a very confronting verse, warning. This, uh, this verse comes immediately before one that will be much more familiar and that we love. Those of us who are believers, who read the Bible regularly, will know that the fruits of the Spirit are Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I only know that by heart because Ramsey taught me a song to remember it. But we'll be familiar as a verse, right? It's lovely things. They sound lovely. They sound great. This is what comes immediately before it. I'm not going to read it to you. I have color-coded it for a reason. The church is really known for talking about the blue stuff, the turquoise sections of this verse. I'm not going to digress too much, but I'm going to say, I think what the world doesn't know when we talk about this stuff is we're relating it to unity and disunity. We're relating it to treating each other with dignity, treating each other with care, treating each other as fragile, woundable image bearers, that we're using our bodies in ways that do not take power seriously or harm seriously. But it's not about being anti-pleasure. The church knows a bit about the sections uh, in pink. Uh, the, the world knows a little about the uh, that the church is interested in the sections in pink, which says idolatry and witchcraft. Maybe not that much, actually, particularly if you think of idolatry around money. Maybe they don't know that uh, we're supposed to care about those things. But there is a whole green section that I don't think people know that we are supposed to be against that we are supposed to be avoiding in our lives like cancer. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. These things, like the person who wrote this verse really wants to drive this 
point home because they're saying the same thing in lots of different ways. Dissensions and factions, jealousy and envy, hatred and fits of rage, selfish ambition. It's like these things. I'm going to say them again and again. And as part of the Ministry of Reconciliation, as part of our calling as peace member, peacemakers, we are called to wrestle with these things, these worms that are eating at the rind, that eat at our own soul, that eat at our communities, and that eat at our ability to image God as a bringer of peace in the world. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, and we are called to partner with God to know that he invites us to move from these things into patience and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. On the next slide, I'm going to say a little bit about a book called Fractured by John Yates. And uh, John writes about what I think is one of the central problems that makes peace and, reconciliation, peace and reconciliation so hard. And he's just describing it in purely sociological terms. He says that all humans have this deep um, tendency within us. And the technical term is homophily. It's love of the same, love of the similar. That's a very technical word. So he rebrands it as people like me. All humans have a tendency to feel more comfortable and more safe with people like us. And like the first third of the book is the studies that demonstrate that this is universal. That even those people who hope that we're not like this, who think we're right thinking and enlightened, particularly in situations of stress or pressure, but really all the time, semi-consciously, we are drawn to people like us. And that can be on the most like ridiculous level. Like let's lower the stakes of these examples. When I started thinking about this and noticing this in myself, I realized that uh, I feel much more comfortable with tall women initially. And it's just because I'm, you know, I'm very tall. And when I was at school, I was the tallest girl in school and all the, all the, the, the petite females were the cool popular ones and I was a hulking giant. And that just lives somewhere in my subconscious, right? So I just feel like mildly reassured when I meet another woman who's tall, because she's like me, you know, I see something. The studies show that we, we support a football team and we see someone who's been mugged wearing the football team, the shirt of the football team we support, we're something like 70% less, more likely to stop and help them than if they're wearing a different football team shirt. You can do it on eye color, you can do it on hobbies you can do it on preferences one day just like sit down and write a list of like groups of people that you feel really comfortable with and drawn to and groups of people that if someone invited you to a party full of these people you'd go and notice that you've basically written a self-portrait it's okay it's all of us it goes really deep in us and honestly it goes so deep in us and is so universal i don't think that it, I, I don't think that God made a mistake. I think that being drawn to people that we know and are familiar with and are like us can be a totally fine thing. Love of our own church, love of our own neighborhood, love of our own nation, love of our own family. These things can be ways that we grow in love, right? They don't have to be toxic, but they can really quickly get toxic. Yates in the book compares it to our love of sugar. He says, an environment where there's not much sugar, actually having a taste for sugar 
because it's quick energy in survival situations can be really good for us, right? As long as there's not a lot for it around, a preference for sugar for, you know, ancestors who were in different food environments to us was neutral. It, was, it could be even be helpful. But in an environment where packaged, ultra-processed, high-sugar foods are everywhere you look, and there's a bunch of global corporations whose entire profits rely on getting you to eat more of it, that innate part of us can rapidly get out of control. They call it an obesogenic environment. I think what we're living in is a conflictogenic environment. That the bit of us that has a preference for people like me is not being kept under control, but is being fed. We don't live often with people who aren't like us. We less and less often work with people who aren't like us. And I think most importantly, we are existing in digital media environments where we are not connecting with people who aren't like us. And so our people like me tendencies are not being kept out of control. We're just going to call that our tribalism, right? We all have a tribalism. And if we let it, we will be formed by that wider culture and people who don't, not only don't love their neighbours, but are contemptuous for their neighbor, of their neighbours or dismissive of their neighbours or suspicious of their neighbours or hostile of their neighbours or roll their eyes at their neighbours when their neighbours are mentioned. These, those kind of people, that type of people, people who believe that, people who vote like that, people who wear that. Like the, it's really embarrassing when you start examining your heart and notice how much tribalism is in there. It is at least for me. I hope it's not just me. So what do we do? This is the environment, this is the deep-seated, when we let it get out of control, sin that we are dealing with. The good news is that not only does the gospel have a high calling for us, it says you can be peacemakers. You can be part of this ministry of reconciliation. But in the example of Jesus, it offers us a sense of how. So we're going to go to the next slide, and I'm just going to speak... Um, just, um, thank you, um, a little bit about each of these areas. And I could talk for a whole talk on any of them, and I'm really happy to talk to anyone afterwards who would like to know any more about them. Um, but this is what I have found in the Gospels, because Jesus didn't just die for us and rise for us to reconcile us to God. In his earthly ministry, he was doing extraordinarily powerful anti-tribalism practice. Every single story that you read about him. I'm going to start with disrupt the tribes. And I want you to imagine first century Palestine as being exactly as tribal or more tribal than 21st century Britain. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you had the Essenes, you had the Zealots. You had multiple factions in the nation of Israel. Then you had the Romans, the colonial oppressors of the people. You had the collaborators with the Romans, anyone who was working in a functionary uh, with, the, with the empire, tax collectors, for example. You had women who were very often not seen, seen as other, seen as outside, outside the tent, outside the tribe, outside the nation, particularly at certain times of the month. You had people, and this is Disability Inclusion Sunday, you had people who were denied access to the temple and denied access to the community because of a physical limitation. And there were really strong social barriers 
between those groups. Who talked to who? Who didn't talk to us? Before you even get to Samaritans and Ethiopians and those that were seen as kind of even more other. I want you to imagine Jesus in a gospel, walking into a scene. And now whenever I read it, I see him as, I don't know if any of you have watched Fleabag. Fleabag is a, a, a comedy in which he's constantly turning to camera with a very mischievous look on her face. And I can almost see Jesus winking and then scanning the situation and, and thinking, who is the biggest outsider in this gathering? Who is it going to be most shocking if I go talk to them? Who is it going to make everyone go, <gasps> if I sit down next to them, go to their house for dinner, let them touch me? And then he goes and does it. It's just like, almost deliberately mischievously subversive tom wright talks about this as just like smashing purity boundaries just subversively undermining the in-group and out-group dynamics that are at work in the in, in 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 the places that he's going to just it's 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 like socially shocking it makes everyone tense no one knows what to do with it it's why Generally, when people are angry with him, they're angry with him because they're like, don't you know who they are? Don't you know who she is? Don't you know what he's done? Like, can't you see the barrier? Can't you see the boundary? Can't you see that they are outside the tribe? They are outside the us. They are outside the we. She just doesn't care. Doesn't care. It's hilarious. You really... It really cracks me up the way he is just high tolerance of social chaos. So one of the things we can do as Christians is be people who disrupt tribes. Who in any social gathering don't go, who's like me? Who do I feel comfortable with? Because they're of the same socioeconomic background. Because I went to university with them. Because I have the same job as them whatever, all these like myriad, myriad, tiny identity markers that we use, but instead go, who here might feel on the outside? And how, I'm going to go sit with them. I'm going to go say hi. I'm going to ask their name and connect with them on a human level. And look at our social life and our belonging and our membership and think, am I only with people like me? Because if I am, I might be missing the fullness of the freedom and the beauty and the interest that Jesus is calling us into. Secondly, turn the other cheek. Such a well-known verse. It's really hard to hear it for the like radical statement of intent that it is. Most of you will know of the phrase fight or flight. It's a reaction in our bodies that happens when we experience situations of threat. Physical threat, yes, but also social and interpersonal threat. We basically, we release a stress hormone and it primes us to be ready for action. And honestly, I think when we stray out of our tribe and we stray out of people like me, we get a little dose of fight or flight. And the clues in the name, like the natural reaction to fight or flight is either to, to fight back, to become hostile, sneering, dismissive, attacking, or to flight, <laughs> to run away, to pull back, to go back into the safety of people like me, people who disagree with me. 
So when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he is literally commanding people to override their fight or flight. Do not hit the person back who hit you in the face, but also don't run away. And it's, again, it's so, so badass. It's so subversive. It's so like, stand your ground and keep eye contact and change the dynamics of the situation. It's an incredibly unexpected move. And there's obviously situations where it's a terrible idea. I am not going to tell you if you walk out tonight and someone hits you in the face to plant your feet and say, here you go. That's not my right to tell you that. I think it's probably not safe. <laughs> We're not going to go there. All I'm going to say tonight is in situations of social threat or interpersonal discomfort, when you feel tense and annoyed or defensive and anxious, when you feel like you are not being seen or respected, when you feel dismissed or attacked, we can try, if we want, to neither come at them with hostility or pull back into ourselves. We can stay with curiosity. We can stay with steadiness. To, to say something about what that might mean in practice, and this is like it, again, like incredibly low stakes example. And all I'm telling you about today is in our day to day life, how can we change the dynamics of some of these situations where conflict and division can escalate? I'm not trying to give you like if you're in a war zone, this is how to be a reconciler, even if you're in. Um, yeah, I'm just going to park that. But the way this works out in my life is when I'm in a situation where I feel I can feel that fight or flight. I can feel that like you, you know, how dare you? Or just that response in me, I can stop and wait. I was once in a like <coughs> ridiculous sort of Twitter situation where I had put out something about the new atheists. Someone who I'd met, I'd had a couple of beers with because he's a very big public atheist and I'd been trying to get to know him and make friends with him. So we'd had had some contact, replied to something I'd said online with this incredibly withering and patronizing set of tweets. He basically called me stupid and that I was oppressed by my Christianity and various other things. It was just like mean, really mean, spirited, pointed. And I'm sort of embarrassed to say it because maybe we're supposed to be thicker skinned, but I hope I'm not the only one here. When someone basically insults us, we have quite a strong reaction. I just felt this like, you, <laughs> just absolutely overwhelmed with seething resentment. And so I drafted all this response like, how dare you mansplain my religion to me? Like, oh, by the way, that book you quoted, if you look in chapter 17, you'll see, like, how do I make you feel stupid? Like, you made me feel stupid. How do I, how do, how do I take you down? Like, I was in fight. <laughs> Sometimes I react with flight. In that situation, I was in fight. I was scrappy-doo. I was like, I will show your, insert much, uh, profanity. But I'd been, I'd been sitting with this idea that what Jesus is calling us to and turn the other cheek is to resist the fight or flight. And I was like, oh, oh, I think this is stress hormone. <laughs> I think this is what cortisol feels like. I think I probably should log out of my Twitter account right now. So I did, and I spent four days calming down 
because that's how I am. And then when I was able to go back, I said, ouch, would you like to come for dinner? And he did. And we've got to know each other and I'm much more friendly now and have many conversations about faith that he never would have had if I'd come back with like you, like I wanted to. <laughs> Turn the other cheek often means just resisting our first impulse. Responding, not reacting. Taking a second to let ourselves settle and then asking God what to do next. And then finally, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute, annoy, offend, hurt, or reject us. This is so radical. This is so hard. This is so powerful. This is so unexpected. The only way I, I calmed down with the guy online was doing this. I didn't have it in me. I didn't, I didn't have it in me to like get over my bruised ego, which is what it was. So I was like, Lord, I feel terrible. I am full of rage. <laughs> this is no fun. <laughs> like, how do I get, you know, when you, you know, when you feel that resentment, annoyance, hurt, it's horrible, isn't it? It's horrible. It just washes around in you. It feels like acid in your belly. And honestly, like it was entirely selfish, like, Lord, how do I stop feeling like this? I don't want to feel like this anymore. It's horrible. And this verse floated up. Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. And I was like, no, he does not deserve that. Often they won't deserve that. But God doesn't say you're not going to have enemies. You're not going to have people who treat you badly. You're not going to have people who wrong you. He does say, pray for them. Seek to love them. And I, could, I didn't know how to love him, but I sort of knew how to pray for him. And the gift when we pray for people is God, God supplies the love. I don't think there's a way of praying for someone and staying in that resentful rage with them. I really don't. It's like some sort of beautiful spiritual law. As soon as you go through gritted teeth, Lord, would you please bless this? <laughs> just ebbs it just releases something relaxes something goes and it is such a relief the, the things from the earlier slide the envy the bitterness the factions the dissensions the rage the selfish ambition it's horrible it's a horrible thing it, it does feel like worms eating at the rind of us right but god offers us a way to deworm ourselves and he just graciously picks them out. We pray for those who persecute us and hurt them and we seek to love them. And he slowly, slowly helps us see them as he sees them and love them as he loves them. There's so much that's complex in here. There's so many dynamics that mean that we need to treat all of these things with care. And in your own lives, I'm sure you'll have examples of things that you're like, yes, Liz, but what about this? I would love to talk to you about that stuff. I don't want to deny that is complex. We need to seek discernment and wisdom and courage in each situation and seek God's wisdom and his leading for us. 
And neither do I want to say, either this comes easily or I get to tell you what to do. <laughs> Only you know, in your own life, in the situations that you're in, where the Spirit is calling you to be a peacemaker, where the Spirit is calling you to reconcile, and where that's not what he's asking of you right now. Whether you've taken too much, <laughs> carried too much, actually well, all you need right now is a place of healing for your so I don't want to offer this as some like blanket proposition or a burden to put on people who have already suffered too much under their enemies. But I want to say that this, I think, is part of our calling as a church collectively over time. And it's both incredibly difficult and incredibly liberating and incredibly radical and incredibly beautiful when we get to partnership, partner with Jesus on it. I'm going to ask you now to turn to your neighbor and uh, or maybe take like 30 seconds of silence and then turn to someone and just share what's on your heart from that, what's challenging, what you disagree with, all that's fine. And then we'll hand over to Jonathan for worship after about five minutes. I'll be ready over the side at the end to pray for anyone or talk to anyone 